Hey, Mockingcasters, RJ here. Uh, it's that time of year when we give you a little bit of an update on all the things going on at Mockingbird and ask for your support of uh, Mockingbird's incredible ministries. Now, I also want to say thank you because as of right now, our podcast is up to about 20,000 listeners per episode, which just totally blows us away. So thank you so much for listening and for telling other people about the podcast and for all of your uh, support. Now, if you're only familiar with The Mockingcast, you might not know that Mockingbird isn't just uh, one podcast. It's actually uh, five podcasts, uh, three annual conferences, uh, publications, including the amazing Mockingbird magazine. It's 10 full uh, and part-time employees working hard to bring you amazing resources, including a website that got over a million page views last year. And all that is to say, uh, we really need your support. Uh, we need your financial support. And if you're willing to make a recurring monthly donation, uh, you will receive a free uh, copy of resubscription to the Mockingbird Quarterly, which itself is worth the price of admission. So if you love this podcast, this ministry, as much as I do, please join me in becoming a financial supporter of Mockingbird. Now, the way to do that is to go to the website. It's mbird.com support. Again, mbird.com support. And there you'll find out about how you can make a gift. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for your support. And I wish you all a very merry and happy, blessed Christmas. Bye. Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host. And in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hi, you two. I'm so happy to be here. We are finally getting close to the end of the year. We got Thanksgiving behind us. Advent is on the horizon. And what's happening? How did it go? Did you guys survive? How's last week? Oh, we had a great Thanksgiving. We had a great week. It was just really, you know, we're navigating finally with some confidence. My parents being gone at the holidays and like how we handle it and my brother had this very good idea a couple of years ago, right after they died, really, that we should do something we call Wally Moon Day. Um, and Wally Moon was a baseball player in like the 50s, I think. And he played for the L.A. Dodgers and he had like a massive eyebrow and um Unibrow. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah, unibrow. And we we celebrate Wally Moon Day now every year on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving and we like open up Christmas presents and we this year my brother had shirts made that were in the Dodgers font but had a huge unibrow over it. Mm -hmm. And this year I actually um we watched a documentary. So we, uh, that's a part of it too. We always watch footage of Wally Moon. So last year he's like, he's like one of those, it's so fascinating celebrities in the fifties and sixties, especially athletes used to do like these really poorly acted, just like spots in those Western shows mm -hmm. like Bonanza, you know? Really? Okay. Oh yeah. So Wally Moon did a little acting. Um, so last year we watched that this year we watched some documentary stuff about him and his son was in it. And I was like, 
I think I'm going to reach out to his son and tell him we do this. <laughs> and so I did on Thanksgiving morning. I sent him some pictures and I was like, I hope you can take this in a good spirit. But, you know, we lost my folks and this is kind of like how we're navigating it. And you guys, he sent me the nicest note back immediately and was uh-huh. like, this totally makes my Thanksgiving. Mm. I cannot wait to share it with my sisters. And I'm celebrating Wally Moon Day in my heart. Oh, I know. So I have to tell you guys, I thought, Sarah, when you you texted us about this, I thought you were trolling me at first because I went through a phase earlier Sarah this troll. year where I, I, I went in and, and tried to find all the funniest uh, kind of kitschy baseball cards yeah. that have ever been made. And I, you yeah. know, the guys with the huge ears and the huge afros and stuff like that. Yeah. And on every single list of like kind of most absurd baseball cards ever printed, there's always like maybe two Wally Moon yep. unibrow cards yep. that are kind of like, can you believe this exists type of thing? And then yeah. you're like, we're celebrating Wally Moon Day. I was like, I thought to myself, there is a God in heaven who is orchestrating all of these this for his purposes, and I just feel I be- known that. and loved, and I just cannot believe. Uh, how do I get one of these t-shirts? That's- I love that. Well, his <laughs> baseball card is hanging in my nephew's nursery, just so you know, because my dad, of course, had it because I don't know. He's like a third cousin, but anyway. Amazing. What I can't believe is that you two guys connected over sports and i had no, and i have no i've never heard of wally moon so i tell you so there god you in heaven. that's a sign yeah. of the grace of god i think right yeah. there. really we connected yeah. over unibrows but yes 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 and I if mean, you're we're wondering talking yes i do have to wax my brow a lot so i do mm. think it's a family trait I see. Well, he's he's really it's a legendary unibrow in in like American history. I'd say yeah. it's one of him the and great- Anthony Davis, who none of you know, neither of you know who Anthony Davis is, right? Nope. You know who that is. Did he's a basketball do. player for the Lakers. Who they literally his nickname is the Brow. Because oh my he, gosh! You ever heard of the Brow? <laughs> yeah. No. But he's I'll also like insanely good, insanely good, okay. so he can okay. get away with it. So, large. Okay. How was your th- how was your holiday? It was great. It was wonderful. I need to apologize in advance to all my friends in Houston that I did not reach out to because we were there pretty much all um, last week because our boys, our older boys wanted to be there because their friends were there and girlfriends and we just spent a lot of time with them and ate all the food and enjoy the cooler weather and it was just really nice to get away for a few days and, you know, not answer emails or, you know, I made a few phone calls, but um, it was really, really wonderful. So good to be back, ready for advent and christmas but yeah thanksgiving was great how about you dave um delightful thanksgiving easy thanksgiving i'd say the highlight for me uh kate and i went and saw the holdovers um, yeah the movie that's in the theaters right now paul giamatti it's about a it's, it is total grace i did not really read up about it except for i knew it had to do with boarding schools and uh it i watched it and was simply bowled over there's so it begins with like a sacred hymn and it, it, it oh my gosh. there's so much Christianity in it, but not in a kind of like irritating or cloying or cheap way. Uh, it's, it's total grace. Everyone who's, who's listening, go out and watch it. It's, um, my wife and I just kept look, turning to ourselves in the middle of this movie. It's like, how did this get made? Wow. It's not, a, it wasn't a book. It's not pre-existing IP. It's hilarious. It, takes Christmas and suffering and, and pain seriously, but it's really funny, very human. And, uh, 
I don't know. It's Alexander Payne who did Election and did The Descendants, if you know him. Oh, my gosh. But usually he's much more arch and much more sort of removed and kind of ironic. This has heart. It's like a – I mean, move over, Dead Poet Society. This is going to be, for me – and some people know that I, I, I used to – I went to a boarding school and I, I used to work as a youth minister in boarding school. So within like the first minute, there was a scene in a room at one of the boarding schools where I used to help with Christian fellowship meetings. So it, was, it, it had a let abreactive thing for me. But I got to say, the second it goes on streaming or if you're looking to go to the movie theater, I just I'm not gonna urge people to support the movie so more yeah. movies like this get made. Yeah, It's not quote-unquote Christian cinema, but it's like um, just beautiful. Good. Sarah, you you will flip out over this movie. Okay, it's lots cool. of great stuff. So that was the highlight for me, Go among ahead. many others. Cool. Um, so anyway, not draw a turkey. That wasn't your highlight. <laughs> our our meal was 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 delicious. Checks uh, the box, babe. That's what I always say about Thanksgiving. Yeah, I always say like, what are the two worst meats? Uh, ham and <laughs> followed by turkey. And so it's like those are you the guys worst are meats. cooking your turkey 100%. wrong. I'm sorry, turkey. No, turkey is amazing if you do it right. Baby. Nobody's cooking it wrong, baby. You're not basting Nobody's, enough. I've had you the gotta, deep you know, fried. I've had the fully basted. A no, really wrong. good turkey. I disagree. Is still only. Turkey is, is kind of is is like a decent chicken. Like I mean, you could. Amen. I'll just Dave, I can go on record with a strong opinion here. I could Ham is the worst of the meats, and 100%. turkey is the second worst of the meats. Dave, we just got to put some turkey in a pizza, and then you're in, and then game on. <laughs> Let's talk about this. We've got some great articles today. Um, the first one was printed in the 1843 magazine, which is the Economist sort of long long form uh, publishing arm. And it is, sorry you feel that way, why passive aggression took over the world. This is by Josh Cohen. Uh, he defines passive aggression is the surreptitious, indirect, and often insidious means by which we express antagonism or noncompliance while ensuring the plausible deniability of any such intentions. It flourishes in the workplace where more direct expressions of frustration and resentment are considered unprofessional. We can all think of examples, the sort of time-serving colleague who is reliably hostile or whose obstructive behavior is at once performed and disavowed so that the offender can assure you that he or she certainly didn't intend whatever irritation you may now feel. It leaves you feeling perhaps that you're the one with the problem. Strikingly, passive aggression is a strategy that can be adopted by both the boss, class, and its minions. Such habits are exacerbated by the rise in remote working. Modes of communication like email and Slack easily amplify our suspicions of others' secret hostility. In team meetings, conflicts and resentments play out in the language of politeness. Any academic, for example, will know that departmental meetings are festering petri dishes of passive aggression. He says, I teach at a university, and I remember a colleague in another institution telling me about a junior lecturer raising the issue of administrative workloads in one such meeting. The unnamed targets of her intervention were two or three professors especially adept at evading the large admin load which all other colleagues were burdened with. She said, I think it's very important that admin is evenly distributed across the department so that we all have time to do our research. Well, responded one of the offending professors with a much broader smile, I know I, for one, am very grateful to colleagues who make up for publishing less with more admin. Whoa. 
<laughs> he said this knowing full well that junior colleagues were prevented from publishing more because of their bureaucratic burdens. The dishonest attack was presented as a warm expression of collegial gratitude, and the junior lecturer was reduced to silence. Uh, aggression is a salve against feelings of helplessness, a way of assuring ourselves we are masters rather than hapless victims of the world around us. Even the professor's self-satisfied barb against his junior colleagues was provoked by the fear that his position in the hierarchy was under threat. Instead of exposing our feelings of insecurity, passivity becomes a sneaky way of asserting ourselves. Perhaps we should call it aggressive passivity instead. If we think of passive aggression less as a pathology in others and more as a common expression of fear of dependency latent in us as well as families and colleagues, we might respond to it more humanely. Would anyone describe you as passive aggressive? I think my kids would. They would? Yeah. I mean, I like they keep talking about the workplace. I'm like, uh, this is like parenting, especially now that we're hitting this like 12, 13 moment. Mm-hmm. It is hard not to say, I'm sorry you feel that way, like, constantly, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like a you keep your calm kind of thing, and they freak out. And that is, like, you know, the it's, it's really the way as a parent that you, like, can, I don't know, show some dominance. Like, I don't even want to, like, be act like it's a good thing. Like, you show dominance... And your kid developmentally is like scrambling. You know what I mean? Like, yep. what does that mean? How does this work? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, this is like a very, very easy place to go for me as a parent. I would mm -hmm. say more than anything. Have I worked in work environments with big staff meetings where people say passive aggressive things for most of the meeting? Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely done that. Um, but thank God I'm not doing that right now. So You know, uh, I've even heard tell of religious or Christian environments where people uh, pray passive aggressively in public. So, you know, I've so, only worked in Christian call those environments. Horizontal so. prayers. <laughs> horizontal <laughs> <Exactly>. prayers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, AKA yeah, any yeah, yeah. any uh, environment. Yeah. Those has, are also easy to do with your kids though. Because like sometimes they are just ass hat central and I get to the table and i'm just like lord we ask for our children to be kind to each other you know and they're like can we please just eat this frozen pizza so why did you pray like that mom what i didn't do it. i was talking to god what are you talking I know, about I know. yeah it's a it's a real dynamic isn't it rj yeah. what do you think i guess i was thinking about how you know when i have felt frustrated what i wanted and then when i felt frustration from people over whom i had some authority you know, in my better moments, in my better moments, yeah. what I felt like the the appropriate response was. I, I, and I guess I just feel like it, it's it's probably always just some level of empathy, mm -hmm. right? That with your kids, when they're bitching and moaning about their lives to be like, yeah, yeah, school yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I like, I re like, yes, I remember middle school and it sucked. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but like, let me know how I can help. It will be over. It's going to be okay. Um, Please go feed the dogs. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yes, you're part of a family. This yeah. is what it looks like to. to yeah. you, we want you know to be a grown up, to be part of a family, and have some yeah. responsibility. And like, yes, yeah. that's right. And guess what? I have all sorts of stuff I don't want to do either, and I do it right. too. Hmm. Um, or I remember like a, a marital, our marriage therapist um, saying to both of us, and probably more me, because I, you know, I need more verbal affirmation than Jamie does. She's like, now, RJ, do you do you need this to be fixed, or do you just need kind of a poor baby? 
do you need Jamie to just give you a little a little oh. poor baby moment? And I'm like, yeah, I'd l- I would love a poor baby moment. That's actually what I want. Mm. Yeah. And when you get a poor baby moment, um, it doesn't totally make everything go away, but it makes a lot of it go away. Yeah, right. Just to be just to hurt. be heard, it doesn't hurt. And then when I, you know, I think when I have wanted to f- express frustration to people in authority over me, probably yeah, more than wanting them to. Of course, I wanted them to change or do something differently, or but probably I also wanted a little empathy, a little compassion, a little yeah. bit like rather than be like get you know get your act together. Like right. what, what the hell is what? How dare you express any negative emotion whatsoever? Right. That's not allowed. You must be happy all the time. Right. And it's like that's sorry, you know, that's yeah. not realistic. That's not real. So. It's very, yeah. it's a very stressful. I mean, in in any kind of work environment, let me say, where where someone is just freezing you out, or they're cold, and you can tell that they're hostile, but they're not willing oh, to really yeah. say it. And um, yeah. you know, I I know that I'm certainly the chief of sinners here. I mean, especially at home, but in the workplace, I've just. I've, I've had it happen a number of times where we've tried to sort of, okay, do you have an issue? Like, can we address this? No, yeah. no, everything's fine. You know, like yeah. that's, uh, well, it, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone in here, the temperature drops when you walk into the room. Um, I think it partly in workplace, I, you get scared as both an employee and employer to sort of surface these things in a direct way because you don't, you don't want to make it worse. Well, because like the passive aggressive stuff is really just a block for vulnerability. And mm-hmm. so it's scary to be the one that's like, hey, you know what I mean? Like, I mean. <laughs> and there's a power differential. It gets really d- awkward, totally. too. Totally. It's yeah, it's I mean, that that part of the office is hard. And, you know, I mean, I guess we've made it clear, but like it's just not any better in churches. And. I am interested though, RJ. I mean, you I, talk about what you want, but I, you do have like a church staff. I mean, you know, I guess what you're saying is like you pivot when you feel this feeling of you want to be like, I'm sorry you feel that way or whatever, you know, you pivot to empathy. That's sort of, I guess, what you're saying. Or I, I also try, because I've had people, you know, in my church be angry at yeah, me and sure, hurt. Sure. Um, and I guess I more pivot into like, okay, just shut up. Mm-hmm. And listen, mm-hmm. you know, try to hear what they're saying, uh, try yeah. to submit to their reality a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, you know, just apologize because I'm, I'm, I'm fine apologizing. You know, yeah. I'm fine owning whatever not I can. A, not everyone whatever, feels that way, but yeah. What, what, I'm fine owning whatever I can own. I think that's actually just, really rare, especially for men, aren't they, <clears> just to <throat> name it? But yeah. Well, in my experience, when you apologize, people tend to apologize back. <laughs> You know, yeah, it, it, it creates room. It's a for mutual to, acknowledgement, for, for, or 100%. maybe they don't write then, but they come back a few days. Like you know, what? I thought about this. Yeah, and I and I treated you unfairly, and, I, yeah. and then, then you say, "Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that." Yeah, or you give it a beat. You yeah. give it a week. You give it to. I mean, Dave, I remember you saying, or your dad saying, talking about Mr. Magoo, and one of the keys to pastoral ministry is just kind of being Mr. Magoo and being. I mean, it's in Ted Lasso, right? Be a goldfish, have a two second memory, you know. And someone gave me one of my. Vestry members, um, former senior warden, gave me these three monkey statues, uh, one covering its eyes, one covering its mouth, one covering its ears. (laughs) I was like, that's perfect. I mean, I think that there's a couple things. I mean, yes, anytime – I preached this past weekend at our church, and um, the receiving line when people are leaving, some services everyone does it, some services they don't, and that can be a a Petri dish of both – 
over-effusive praise and sort of transference and almost like idolatry uh, and over-affirmation, but it can also be just a passive-aggressive nightmare. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, or you, that, that was a surprisingly good talk. You know, like oh my god, you, people say that to me all the and that's, time. That's that's a progressive aggressive comment. People say talk all all the time. Um, I good, don't think people like my preaching. This good lecture. Good I yeah. heard one so I was like, what? what oh no, t- lecture. Yeah, the you, you note 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 to our listeners what what every person wants the, the the person who's if you're effectively preached at least what you want to hear is like oh my gosh you really you were in our bedroom last night you know that's what you want to hear you do totally. not want to hear you do not want to hear that was good or that was better just tears uh, my friends <laughs> my friends I have a friend here on staff who said there's this one uh, parishioner who is noted for being a bit of a master and she, and uh-huh. uh, her comment to him once was um. Gosh, you're really getting better, you know. <laughs> oh no! And he's, oh, he'll no. never forget it. He'll never forget it. He'll never forget it. No, but no, no. The, the, one of the one of the great advantages, and I think RJ, you do have this, is that you're working in a church staff that people have to be present for. You know, like I'm running an organization where there's a lot. Oh, yeah. Of remote workers, yes. and yes, they're, what, when they're, the reason they're talking about this in the Economist is because the rise of remote work has been. It's so easy yes. to read to, to a to passive aggressively text someone, but it's also easy to read passive aggression into a text. And the amount of, um, you know, we 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 project all sorts of hostility that's not there, and although sometimes it is there, and so yeah. it's it. I would say that. It's no wonder that passive aggression feels like it's on the rise in a world in which tone of voice, inflection, facial expression are no longer there to communicate at other dimensions, right? Yeah. And people don't even pick up the phone anymore. Right. Right. They, I mean, I, I just, I mean, recently I had, I was having a text conversation with a leader in my church and I just sensed a little weirdness and I just like, called her immediately because I'm like, no, like this is going off the rails. Like, no. Yeah. But people don't really talk. I mean, I don't, I, I don't like talking on the phone, but if it comes down to it, I will call you on the phone because I would just so much rather have that conversation than try to like craft the perfect email or the perfect text or the, you know, preferably face to face, but right. Well, the way that, yeah, always face to face. But I think the reason I'm sort of interested in it from the mocking cast is that passive aggression can become baptized in religious language very easily. And mm-hmm. when you're when you talk about you know yes. God is you know I'm just I'm just really trying to you know follow God in this way, aka you are doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a lot of ways in which I do remember being in prayer circles at, at summer camps and people being like, well, Lord, we just pray that so-and-so would find it in themselves to be more patient today. You know, and like, like what? That's, I mean, that's sort of outwardly aggressive, but there is also a culture I think that should be lauded um, that you do find of sort of bringing things into the light, you know, yes. and saying, if you have a mature kind of set of Christians or just people, he's like, okay, let's come. We got to talk about it. something's going on here. Let's drag this into the light where it can be. That's the, the phrase I've always heard where we can, um, God can deal with it. <laughs> you know, at least we can pray honestly about it rather mm-hmm. than having this stuff burbling under the surface. But I also want to say, in my experience, God deals with it one way or another. Ah, yeah, there you, go. <laughs> you know what Same. I mean? I was just like, thinking, like, I just, don't think it's our job to do he that. Just, I mean, yeah. sometimes you're okay. right, Dave, by the grace of God. I but don't I've know. also I've also oh, had my. things where one person will call me and say, like, oh, my God, I just had this awful conversation. And I was, I was like, right. you know what? Let's just pray, like, just pray about it and see what yeah. happens. 
and yeah. we pray about it, and they come back to me a few days later. I'm like, oh, guess what? We had a talk. We worked it all out. I'm, I'm reversing like, course. God. I'm reversing course. Pray. I love to drag other people's stuff out into the light. When it comes to what's yours, my own's like, um, I'd rather stay here in the dark, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on, Sarah. You uh, you touched on already something that was uh, we want to talk about today. Zadie Smith, the wonderful Zadie Smith, the, I think one of the finest writers in the world. Uh, wrote something in the New Yorker called The Fall of My Teenage Self. And she's mm-hmm. sort of using all of these words in different ways because she's really describing an event where she fell out of a window, a 30-foot high window Whoa. when she was a teenager. And she was, I mean, talk about not what you want to have happened to you when you're a teenage girl, but she was. She landed on what she calls uh, her, um, I guess, bountiful uh, rear end at that point. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. everyone in school basically said she was saved by her, her enormous butt. butt. And oh although she gosh. broke her femur and it was terrible. Yeah, it's a very oh no. funny piece. But it this is she's but. she's a person raising teenagers now. We are all in that uh, scenario. Uh, yeah. RJ's a little ahead of us, but Sarah and I are right entering into it. Ooh. This is what she says how it begins. She says, I've been thinking about teenagers. I have one myself now, and of course I was one once and can remember the feeling. Everything was extremity. It still is. Four waves of feminism, digital connectivity, a global wellness movement, the injunction to, quote, be kind, the commonplace, it gets better. None of it seems to have put much of a dent in teenage misery, especially not the kind that concerns me. Watching girls gather outside the multiplexes this past summer, choosing between Barbie and Oppenheimer, I thought, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Brittle, impossible perfection on the one hand, apocalypse on the other. (laughs) (laughs) I have never forgotten the years I spent stretched between those two poles. And there was a time when I believed that the intensity of my girlhood memories made me somewhat unusual. I was disabused of that notion a long time ago during the early days of social networks. Turns out there's a whole lot of people in the world who feel they never lived as intensely as they did that one particular summer. If teenage me could see me now, she'd be so disgusted. I said that to a shrink a few years ago, to which the shrink replied, why assume your 15-year-old self is the arbiter of all truth? Oh my gosh. Well, it's a good point, but it hasn't stopped me from carrying her around on my shoulder. I don't suppose at this point I'll ever be rid of her. And then she t- talks about the incident, but she says a backstory of, uh, to paints the picture of herself as a teenager. I lived in a world of pure prince then, the musician, and also in a filthy pit of my own creation. Sometimes when I am ranting at my children about the state of their rooms, I suddenly remember what I used to think whenever my mother came in and tried to complain about the bowls of old food stored under my bed and the cigarette butts put out in the bowls of old food and the candles I like to burn and melt into the damp carpet. Yes, when my mother was making her case against me, this is what teenage me would be thinking. You poor woman. If only you had a life of your own. What a pitiful existence is yours if the only thing you can think to do all day is worry about this petty ephemera. Teenage me was reading the dictionary. She could be standing right in front of me, perhaps holding a brie sandwich with five cigarettes put out in it, having just come back from a long day as a social worker, dealing with the kind of children who did not get brie to put in their sandwiches, and could not scream, get out of my room, for they shared that room with their parents, and still I would look at this single-parent, hard-working immigrant mother of mine and think, good lord, woman, get a life. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Every now and then, I took genuine pity on her. Genuine pity meant not changing any of my behaviors, but rather lying and saying that I had. 
Sometimes I ask myself, what would teenage me do with her misery now? Where can a 21st century girl go these days to retreat from reality? If the answer to the internet comes to mind, I'm guessing you're either over 50 or else someone's still able to imagine the internet as, quote, separate from reality. I worry that the avenues of escape have narrowed. I don't think teenage misery is so very different from what it used to be, but I do think its scope of operation is so much larger and the space for respite vanishingly small. Mm-hmm. But I would think that. I'm 48. Very, very good. What do you think? Uh, do you still have your teenage selves on your shoulders? Uh, is it easy to remember what it was like now that you're on the other side of the door, shall we say? I mean, I think it's very easy to remember what it was like. Yeah, and it becomes easier sometimes when, you know, I have a kid that's going to turn 13. Uh, gosh, in like two weeks. And just watching him, you know, do some of the stuff I did uh, at that age. And, you know, like he's got this whole theater thing going. And then I actually dropped him off this morning to get his hair bleached and dyed blue and purple amazing for his birthday gift for advent for oh my god i can't <laughs> wait to say that <laughs> fleming would be so proud right oh, oh my god i'm sending Perfect. her a picture um but yeah i mean i so so i do remember that intensity I don't remember feeling as cool as she seems to remember feeling. I wasn't cool, you know, at all. Like, I had my little crew of friends. Oh, she makes plenty of fun of herself in other places. But yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I just don't. I I don't. So, yeah, I kind of I look at my life now and my teenage self would have never imagined this much goodness for me. Mm. So I think I, I have a different kind of. Yeah, and I never, I actually don't remember thinking of my mom that way. Like, I remember really just being really thankful for her. And I don't, I mean, I don't know what that says about me. I just, like, there was a, a night, I remember, that people were doing a, um, a scavenger hunt in downtown Jackson. And, which just that whole sentence is dangerous. <laughs> and um, it was all these kids I went to school with and all these kids from schools in like public downtown schools in Jackson. I was at a white flight public school to, to be clear. Um, but my parents wouldn't let me participate in it. And at literally every other single friend I had got to participate in it. And I remember being the maddest of them I'd ever been. And then everybody, I mean, it was the dumbest thing ever. Like lists were circulated of the things you needed to get. Like somebody's little brother decided to join in uninvited. And he and his friend went to McDonald's with a sledgehammer. And while McDonald's was open, uh, broke both of Ronald McDonald's ankles on the statue, threw it in their pickup truck. And that was their offering for the scavenger hunt. And they all ended up meeting at the local, uh, like semi pro or whatever baseball stadium, um, with all sorts of lighting. So then the police officers just pull in right behind them. Right. And there was just these like mass arrests. Hmm. And I, that was like such a like moment for me of like, Oh, they're literally just trying to keep me safe. Keep me alive. Yes. Yeah. Like keep me alive. I think that's probably the best way to put it, RJ. Yeah. Mm. And I just don't remember feeling like find something else to worry about. You know, I don't know. 
I had a moment like that too. I think I was a junior in high school. We had just moved again. <laughs> you know, I moved so much growing up. Yeah. And there was a big party one like November, December night and I really wanted to go, but it had start snowing and the roads were icy and my parents were like, no, you're not going. And I got yeah. so mad. I punched a hole in one of their bedroom walls. Oh my you know, through, God. Through, through the drywall. I was so not, mad. Not, not passive aggression. No, I was really mad. Um, but they were right. I'm sure that yeah. they were they were right. And I think I, even, I I think I remember checking like the next few days, and I kind of fizzled out. Like a lot of kids didn't show up, or so it yeah. wasn't an arrest situation. Yeah. Um, but well, from what you, the thing that really got me from what you read, Dave, is that question of who do you allow to be the arbiter of your reality? Mm. Like who is it who's actually sitting on your shoulder, telling you whether or not you're doing a good job? Hmm. You know, whether or not you are where you're supposed to be, if you've accomplished as much as you're supposed to, if your life is worth – and whoever that person is, I mean, man, I hope it's someone who loves you. Yeah. Like I hope it's I hope it's Jesus, first of yeah. all. You know, because I feel like when it's Jesus for me, I'm usually in a pretty good spot. When it's not Jesus, when it's my own ego or – The devil. Who, the devil, someone's approval I'm trying to seek, someone who doesn't care about me, the voice of the world saying like, you're not where you're you – know, you're 47 years old and you should have this figured out by now. That's going to put you in a bad spot. Yeah. You know, but who do you allow to be the – who is the arbiter of your reality? Because that man, that has such a huge effect on your day-to-day sense of well-being, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I always think totally. about um, – yeah, I mean, the question is, what would my teenage self make of my current self? Sarah, you say that they never would have expected so much goodness. Um, my teenage self, I don't think, uh, I mean, I've always been uh, glass half empty, and I, I, I think I would have hardly recognized myself. I mean, it, it, yeah. certain uh-huh. things, I mean, I still love music, and I still I make a lot of jokes that are, you know, varying degrees of humorous. Um <laughs> But I don't know. That can be a very judgmental. I mean, teenagers are extremely judgmental, extremely, and extremely yeah. out of control. I think the, my experience of raising a teenager thus far, and he's he's into it, is um, you know is one of deep compassion because they have so little control over their, mm. their, their, their this extremity. You know, everything is the worst thing in the world or the best thing in the world, or you know, how could you not allow this to happen or that? And it just I. It, it's so obviously um, their 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 bodies are doing crazy things, and they just have they're they're totally in the grip of, of biology. Totally. And the path the path to success feels totally. so narrow, and yeah. everyone is telling you what to do and yeah. what not to do, and like you know everything feels so precarious. But this yeah. is this you is know? also why so many of our great dramas are coming of age dramas and teenage mm-hmm. life. And I mean, I think of the holdovers, which is about teenagers, and it's about teenagers feeling deep suffering and the world mm. telling them, oh, you're so privileged. You got nothing to, you should just be grateful. And, and it secretly, mm. actually, there's a lot of terrible things happening and they're, they're in need of grace. I think yes. that it's, it, it, when we talk about one way love as a definition of grace, I think teenagers are very often who I need to start thinking about, not babies as much because babies are cute. Teenagers are generally speaking kind of awkward you know and i think that they're less lovable in 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 when they're yelling at you that they hate you you know they're just a hundred percent they are less lovable in this moment they're less lovable yeah this is a better metaphor for god's love than the other options i think um yeah. and but i also think you know this is also why they're um you know youth group 
things can be so intense. Um, conversion at that age is mm. can be it's so susceptible to manipulation, but also it can be. Yeah. You talk to many lifelong Christians who are like, you know, I went to a young life meeting when I was fifteen, and totally. maybe I don't know really what happened, but something took root. Yeah, and, and the patterns that get set when you're that age. I mean, like not just the music you listen to and the the kind of people you you first date but those are those leave a deep impression even if they look like now that I'm on the other side of it it just looks like something that's happening in it just daily life it's monumental i i have to remember that and this is why I, I youth ministry is not easy it it sometimes feels like oh we can get anyone to come and do youth ministry at our church and if <sighs> youth ministry is uh you know that is if you're good if you're bad you're bad and if you're mm-hmm. good you are an angel sent from god because it is mm-hmm. such a difficult job I, I having done it and and having and been watching people do it now and the influence they can have on your child better or it's worse it's incredible i mean and thank god like we had neil was in this you know play a few weeks ago and First of all, I have to say it was so precious. I may have said this, but so many people from our church came and I didn't know they were coming, which was like incredible. Like every night I went there, I was like, oh my gosh, there's like 10 people here from our church to see him. Um, Did you go to every show, Sarah? I went to all, but no, actually I went to two, but our daughter, his sister, Annie went to all, but one. She was like, I know like, like, and initially she was like, I'm only going to one. And then I was like every night she was like, I want to go again. I want to go again. Um, Which was so sweet. But, um, his youth group uh, leader came and it was just this beautiful moment where he was so excited that she was there. And then there were these other kids from the youth group who'd come to see Neil and, you know, and I was like, Oh my God, this is like, it's that thing. Is it Tim Keller talked about where like other people have to tell your kids about Jesus? Like it it can't, it can't really be be you. you. And that, that I was like, Oh, she's one of the people right. in his life. And this is what we pray for. I think, I mean, it's honestly, certainly is the case in my life. Um, Yeah. Well, let's go. Theater is a good uh, lead into this next piece. Um, I don't know if we mentioned it last week, but Andre 3000, Andre Three Stacks, the amazing uh, one half of Outcast. Um, Blake Nail, who's been writing wonderful stuff for Mockingbird this past year, he wrote something fantastic about Andre 3000, finally his reemergence in a very interesting way. It's called Andre 3000's Flute in the Midst of Loudness. And it was on Mockingbird. Uh, this is what he said. If those of you don't know, Andre 3000 is known to many as one of the greatest lyrical rappers to have ever lived. Outcast's album, Speaker Box, The Love Below, was recently declared the best-selling rap album ever, going what? 13 times platinum. I know. I was surprised. Because it's, it's, wow. it's a double album, I think it counts twice. Uh, but it sold 13 million units. And, you hmm. know, every time you... W- I was just at a, a professional sports game, <laughs> uh, and Hey Ya is played all the time, you know, that, that you can't get away from it. Um, and yet, it's been 17 years since Outkast has released an album, or since Andre has um, been uh, sort of released any new rap music. He disappeared from the limelight uh, years ago, popping up here and there, but slowly becoming a mysterious John the Baptist in the wilderness figure. Over the years, he's been spotted playing his flute all over the country. Fans have taken pictures with him as he melodically strolls around American cities. And now he's reluctantly stepped back into the spotlight for one reason, uh, to release an album that nobody asked for. 
It's a strictly instrumental project. It's an improvisational flute jazz album um, with him playing an assortment of wind instruments. The album is as unexpected as it is strange. He's gone from lyrical rap music to music without any words. Now, lots of hip-hop commentators have declared, uh, talked about the genre's decline over the past few years, and there's widespread hope that perhaps one of the rap gods, that's, that's the term, from the past would come and bless the people. Messianic undertones are prevalent in the world of hip-hop. But, and I, I actually love this pivot, much like Israel under Roman occupation, <laughs> we want a king or a messiah in our own fashion. Ooh. And yet just as Jesus attempted to warn the disciples of his upside-down, undesirable ways to victory, Andre has also attempted to make it plain exactly what his new project is and how it doesn't live up to the heavy expectations of his audience. In his NPR interview, he was asked about the first track's title. The first track is titled this, I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. Oh, he says, God. "I Holy Spirit." He says, "That's just like direct. That that is that is a direct quote from of Jesus in John chapter three. But continue. He said this. I don't want to troll people. I don't want to think. Oh, this is Andre Andre three thousand has a rap album coming, and you play it and like, oh no, man, no verses. Andre himself says he cannot meet the culture's demand on him. He says this, it actually feels, sometimes it feels inauthentic for me to rap because I don't have anything to talk about in that way. I love that, yes. I'm 48 years old. And not to say that age is the thing that dictates what you rap about, but in a way it does. Things that happen in my life, like what do you talk about? I got to go get a colonoscopy? What do you rap about? My eyesight is going bad? (laughs) Uh, Blake writes this type of honest humility. I would buy that album. This, Blake writes this type of honest humility and humanity is unusual in the world of hip hop. It's a humbling thing to have the status of rap god and don the likeness of banal humanity. Into the loudness of our world steps not only a flute playing silent rapper, but a baby in a manger come to bring some quiet to the soul. One could argue that Jesus's cross is the loudest thing in the universe and simultaneously the lowest decibel word of peace. Oh, this is a great piece. <laughs> I love I, Blake. Thank you. It's so good. Yeah. Well, anytime yeah. you find someone this singular and going, you know, where the wind blows him. I mean, and this is a, he dresses in a loud way. You know, that guy looks cool. He always has had like amazing style. Yeah. I don't know. I find it to be he's not coming back to sort of make some contrarian statement. He's like, this is just what where I'm at right now. Yeah. I mean, I so I thought I do. I love R&B music. I don't listen to as much rap as I used to, but I listen to a ton of R&B. And so I follow a ton of his accounts. And it was interesting, which are run by black folks. And like, you know, that's it's like a, a very clear racial divide like i'm probably one of you know four stay-at-home suburban moms that follows these mm-hmm. r&b groups probably but, more. Um, yeah okay maybe more yeah but um but it was interesting like when this initially hit how many of those accounts were like super disappointed mm. and you know we're like we want we want what he's always done and we want what he's good at and um and then there were then there was like these accounts that sort of came through or in the same account to say like, you know, why are we making demands on this black guy, right? To do a kind of performance that he's always done. I mean, isn't this like the highest form of artistic freedom, right? That he can pivot to something that he feels moved to do. Hmm. 
which was such a beautiful arc. And, you know, I think for, for, at least for me as someone who pays attention to that kind of stuff. Um, I love it. I mean, I, I have a, a relative who's a physician and he, my whole life had like random ass wind instruments just laying around his house. And I'm not sure he was good at any of them, but like, it was fun. And I think there's something really beautiful about Andre, like embracing just what's fun you know yeah and he says he has fun doing it there's nothing you can hide behind he said like he said basically in a rap song you can hide behind the beat you know it's coming yeah you know how to wrap yourself around it in in yeah. improvisational <laughs> flute music you're out there and right. uh it's just uh right. there's no cleverness you know and that sort of vulnerability blake uh him and ron burgundy <laughs> i know i you know. cannot yeah. help but think about ron burgundy a little bit <laughs> i i do think there's always a there's a, often a distinction yeah, between what we want want and what we need and not to say that everyone needs more improvisational flute music in their life though we probably but, do i was but do we, i mean i think we might we were driving back so i took my son his favorite thing in the world is the washington commanders uh football team and oh, poor kid. we uh we were driving back from watch, watching fan. them getting uh, destroyed and, and, and humiliated and just beaten in a, in a very pathetic way and we were listening mm. to the post-game show and this amazing commentator a black guy named fred smoot was sort of he was trying to console all these very disappointed commanders fan and he kept saying listen what you got to do is go get andre three stacks no! new flute album i've been listening to it all day it is it will put you at ease it is exactly what you need to get you in the right That's mindset so to approach and so he was basically saying you need some consolation you need some some love you need some grace you need some kind of beauty go listen to andre three stacks and uh, you'll 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 find your bearings again after this humiliating loss um rj i don't so Fred, that's so funny. I haven't heard the name forever. Fred Smoot. He's like the radio guy or whatever. I'm pretty sure he he was a cornerback at Florida State, and he used to say his tagline was, uh, "Half the Earth is covered by water, uh, the other half is covered by Smoot." Oh. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure like, that's who it is. He's a very very colorful individual. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, I was thinking of my boys, my teenage boys, because I, I do listen to a lot of like pretty chill music. I just mm -hmm. find, and they're always wanting me, like everyone's like, oh, have you seen the new Scorsese movie? And I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch any more Scorsese movies <laughs> because I just always end up feeling like I want to kill myself at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, just like, do I really want to watch a movie about how a bunch of uh, Native Americans got killed in Oklahoma in the 20s over oil? Like, I don't think I want to see that. Couldn't be me. Yeah. I don't want to watch, watch that. The, go watch, watch the holdovers. That. Seriously. Um, I'm going to watch the I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch the holdovers. Yep. But I listen to a lot of like, you know, uh, uh, Nick Drake and Alison Krauss and like, um, you know, chill music. And my boys are like, Dad, why do you listen to such sad bastard music all the time? <laughs> but then actually, whenever I'm in the car with them, like they listen to this amazing, like super chill Japanese music uh, or like what Jackson calls yacht rock. And I yeah. have not pointed out that I was like, I'm always just like, I love your music, but I'm always, I'm like, this is actually very like Radiohead. You know, mm -hmm. like chill music. Mm -hmm. So he might be on to something. Like those are my, you know, kind of hip college kids. And they're not listening to super angry, aggressive music. And they're listening just chiller, calmer stuff. And maybe mm -hmm. maybe that's going to make a comeback because that's what people need a little bit right now, especially as we head into 
God, 2024, God help us. Yeah. God help us. God help. Yeah. I mean, it it is so like, I'm thinking about our kid who is at that age where he's just starting to really get into music. And yeah, it's still like, he loves MJ. Of course. Um, Yeah, of course. Loves MJ. But he loves like, if he, his foray into rap is always like, he loves Chance the Rapper, which is like really chill rap music Mm -hmm. um, as far as it goes. But yeah, I don't, I would, that wouldn't that be wonderful if it all was a little lighter sarah i want to before we go to the last thing i want to pick up on something you said about that people are this is this is the sort of nature of the creative life that that some of the accounts are sort of talking about this is creative freedom you know we did a episode of the brothers saw a few years ago about creativity and what we basically talked about this is our the other podcast i do with my brothers is it creativity and the reason cultural artifacts, art and stuff like that is so uh, potent when it comes to talking about grace is because creativity is usually where freedom uh, plays out or, or the lack thereof. Uh, creativity is very bound up with the experience of freedom. And I think that Andre had, cl- had probably had to travel a long path to get to a place of freedom. And you see this arc a lot of times in artists, in artists to remain vital, they have to somehow get free of expectations of the law of like the pressure to perform or to reach it, to to replicate thriller or something like that. If, um, the dynamics of law and grace is what I'm trying to say are highly present in the, um, in the attempted artistic expression, especially on sort of a larger scale. And so, when I hear Andre and when I listen to both the music, but when I hear him speak, I'm listening to a guy who's got, who's full of freedom and Mm. it's very, it's very uh, compelling to me. Um, I have to say like, and it's so rare. Like I think about like Madonna. Right. And I, so what I wouldn't want people to confuse is like, artistic freedom with constantly having to to change because she feels like to me one of the most bound people oh yeah right because it's constantly having to recreate herself i mean taylor swift is the same way like constantly having to like eras tour be the new the better the best and like that doesn't feel like freedom to me you know the other thing this makes me think of and feel free to cut this but um i was at something you know several years ago I was speaking at a church and I guess I, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I must've mentioned your dad or people know I was affiliated with Mockingbird or something. And these old parishioners of his came over and they were just like, we just, you know, like, I guess Panopticon had just come out and they were like, we just, we don't know what this is. And like, we miss the old Paul. And first of all, the clergy spouse of me was ready to take my earrings off, put my hair up and fight. Mm-hmm. But also just like, I was like, what are you talking about? Like he, he's a whole person and he's allowed to move in different directions and he's allowed to like, let the Holy spirit work in him. Like, what are you talking about? Oh my gosh. That totally, I'm not going to cut this. That that's absolute. Unfortunately, or for very fortunately, he's got a very artistic temperament. He's always been a sort of extreme person. And that was very much in keeping with what his, which is the beauty of him, you know? And that's the thing is I think we, we can, enter into this space where especially with artists i think they start off that way but i think if we're not careful and they're not self-aware enough we just we we don't we we suck that right out of them a couple thoughts i mean one is in my experience that kind of freedom creativity usually comes on the backside of like some kind of catastrophe 
mm-hmm. right? There, there's some, there's mm-hmm. something that happens mm-hmm. that, you know, and I, I mean, not always, but I think about, for example, um, Conan O'Brien, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like when the whole Late Show thing went down, and he kind of went into hiding for a while and grew a beard. Yeah, but then out of that came a real freedom to to yeah. do his live show and to you know podcast and to and he seemed to have he seemed to carry himself a little bit less seriously after that. You know, being on TBS, you yeah. know, rather than the Tonight Show, but also just um, he almost ascended to new heights. So I wonder if there's anything that's happened in. Um, Andre 3000's life that gave him the freedom to just do what he wants to do. The other thing, and you guys have a more, you're more artists than I am because you're both authors, but my sense is from listening to people who are very creative that when they really create something beautiful, there's a deep sense that it's almost like they're not doing it, mm. right? It's mm-hmm. almost like that they're, they're, they're just acting as conduits for something else, right? Something yeah. like God, yeah. something like the Holy Spirit, Wh- whatever you want to call it. They'll say, yes, this was great, but it, it was it was almost, I mean, somebody's got a writer's block, somebody's got to gut it through. But oftentimes when the birth happens, it's like you can't, it's like a train you can't stop, yeah. right? It's just you totally. got to do it, you got to get it yeah. out. So that's an interesting, like how free, like genuine freedom Sometimes also it feels it's like a little bit of self negation. You, you've been taken over, yeah. almost like you've been taken over. But that you've, you're, you know, you're, 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 that there's a joy in it though too. There's a huge joy, right? You're decreasing and something. It's the, Some, the ego yes. is being cr- crushed. I mean, yeah. I want to. Um, these are the these are like the I love these dynamics, and for me, it's like honestly, I'm 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 personally right now wrestling with a new book, and it's very much a process of figuring out, well, I know what so-and-so wants me to write and I know what so-and-so wants me to write and I know like what, what might sell well, but like what is going to actually, you know, as he says, what's going to be authentic in a way that, that right. will come, what can I come across? Write? It's not like a self-referential thing. It's like, what can I actually write? What have I been given? It's like preaching a little bit. What have I actually been given to say at this moment? And it might not yeah. be what I wanted to say or what totally. I, what I, what, what I could say. And that's a totally. very, I think it's a very, uh, um, edifying experience, but it can be quite painful in the, um, hmm. the midst of it. It's like childbirth. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. let's you know? move from. That's why I got an epidural, babe. Improvisational <laughs> flute music <laughs> is on one end of the spectrum, um, emotionally and experientially. I'm we're going to talk about war. That's true. Now uh, we're going to oh, talk about up. war, and uh, we've never really talked about war in the sort of visceral terms. I don't think on this podcast but this is was too uh, potent not to to talk about this is called finding a moral center in this era of war david marchese interviewed the author phil clay for uh the new york times magazine uh, clay who you may know is a 40 year old veteran of the iraq war and he won the national book award in 2014 he's a very lauded uh thinker and writer uh, especially around um war and military uh, matters and is a veteran so this is Marchese speaking. War, understandably or not, flattens thinking. But trying to hold on to a morally expansive perspective on war, one in which multiple things could be true at the same time, also seems necessary. Can you talk a bit about that moral tension? And he says specifically that you can call the Hamas attack an atrocity, and you can talk about Israeli retaliation as atrocious as well. Like you can hold both mm-hmm. of those things in your mind. Now, mm-hmm. everyone, 
put your feelings on hold for just a moment longer. Um, mm. This is what Phil Clay says. He says, there are people who feel like you cannot acknowledge or shouldn't acknowledge too much horrors that are not ideologically convenient. People urgently want you to feel the moral horror of what is happening, but within a circumscribed circle. I think that is morally blinkered. The father searching for his children under rubble that had been his home in Gaza, and a parent and a child who were bound together and burned to death by Hamas, to think about the horror of that in a serious way means not immediately transmuting it into ideological fodder. You can make strong moral and political arguments, but if in making those you feel like you must obscure or ignore atrocity and horror, that's corrupt intellectually and morally. It prevents you from actually understanding the complexity of the situation which you're attempting to speak to, and in the long term will make you less effective in whatever you want to do. Out of basic humanist principles, the idea that we must close our eyes to suffering that is not ideologically useful is morally degrading to ourselves. It's repugnant. Okay, he's got a lot to say about war, but this is where my mind was completely blown. Um, he says, Phil Clay is, is a practicing Catholic. Uh, Marchese says this, you didn't walk away from a belief in God or a just God after seeing and experiencing the things you saw and experienced during your time in Iraq. How do you see God in a war zone? This is what Clay says. How do you not see God in a war zone? The God I believe in was tortured and died in agony on the cross. God is there when I see another human being and see something of infinite worth and value. God is there in this infinite horror and majesty of the world. The idea to me that all of this beauty and all this horror is nothing but mere matter seems ridiculous, and I can't disentangle my sense of horror from my sense of the beauty and value of what is being destroyed in war. I'm also deeply convicted by the sense that there's a God whose ultimate experience was to suffer and die, and yet that's not the totality of the story. That is a central image in the idea of forgiveness and unearned redemption. It is deeply, deeply important to me. I don't know what other option there is. Marchese says, you mean as far as belief? He says, I don't know what other option there is than on a personal level to get on one's knees and beg for forgiveness. We're so unequal to responding to the challenges of the world that we nevertheless have a responsibility to. I mean, we've been talking about the current conflict, and don't you just feel stupefied by the horror of it? Marchese says, it's completely shattering. And Clay says, it is. Have you guys seen the meme that's been making the rounds about how every religion is waiting for a savior? has been waiting for a savior for hundreds or thousands of years. And maybe the problem is that we need to stop waiting for a savior and just roll up our sleeves and get to work. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah and I, I obviously as a Christian, I, I immediately had an adverse reaction to that. Sure. Yeah. But to me, this piece is the answer to that, right? You know, I've heard it said, I think it's true. I, I know this is true. There's someone in our congregation who's a, who's a um, veteran said, the best military chaplains are always people who've seen combat, who've actually been there, mm -hmm. and who've said, "I don't want to do that anymore. I don't. I'm done killing. I want. I don't want to. I want to save life now. I don't want to take it. You know, I want to find meaning in it. I want to be there when people are suffering or dying, when they're when they're injured. Um, and I have heard it say that the most anti-war people are people who've been to war, and that. You know, other people who haven't, they can talk about it, but till you've seen it in the way that this guy has seen it and seen um, what the world looks like, um, we need a <laughs> we need a savior, right? The only option is to get on our knees and beg for forgiveness and pray for 
deliverance for God to show up and save us from our broken, selfish humanity and from this illusion that we can roll up our sleeves and fix the problem. You know, um, I don't know, man. Such a deeply counterintuitive thing for him to answer. The, the guy says, how can you see God in war? And he, and he says, how can you not see how God in not? war? I mean, and there are ways if I think, uh, I mean, if God is, you know, uh, rainbows and unicorns and kind of, uh, what does is, what is Robert Capon say? The sort of divine gumball machine mm-hmm. um, that, that, that we construct in our own image. I mean, then it's very hard to see God in, in war. And it's it's very hard to even comment this on this, of course, having not been in combat. But I, I do concur with him saying that his the central revelation of God, as he understands God, is Jesus, who as he, as he says, the God I believed in was tortured and died in agony on the cross. God, so God is there when I see. Uh, in this infinite horror and in the infinite majesty of the world, I think that's it's not just a fortunate truth. It's a, it's it's a deeply unfortunate truth that has a, a sort of a, a redemptive uh, valence that you cannot deny. Um, his only response to war is to sort of beg for forgiveness. That's that's at least how I'm reading what he says. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I so we have. Uh, I feel like you guys aren't deep Southerners in the way that like. You have a ton of family that have served in the military and have family in the military right now, is my guess. There's just so there's so much mental illness, and on the one hand, was that was made worse by serving in the war in my family, Um, and on the other hand, I think maybe just caused alcoholism in a different part of the family, and so you know the glorification of war is always. feels just very empty to me and all always feels like something people say who haven't been in combat. I think the thing for me with this piece is like how one of the beautiful, maybe the most beautiful gift we get from Catholicism is this focus of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, the crucifix, right. The actual, yeah, the crucifix. And how we tend to soften that a lot more as Protestants and not not think about it. I mean, I think maybe we think about it, God willing, you think about it, you know, during Holy Week, but we don't think about it on a regular basis. It isn't, you know, if I pick up sort of any Protestant um, devotional, right, we're not going to talk about Jesus being tortured and dying on the cross, and yet, that is where so much of humanity lives. It's where so many children live, you know. And I, uh, the the image I can't get out of my head right now. And it's so funny because it it's, it does nothing to do with the Middle East. Is um, an organization popped up that is 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 trying to you know bring more awareness to children in Africa who are mining for minerals at, you know, four years old and not eating enough food and separated from their families for pennies a day so that we can have cell phones. And there's just, you know, and we see this stuff all the time, right? We're inundated with images of horror and need. 
Um, but this four-year-old has just like stayed with me. And I, I think the only, the only thing that, that makes sense is a crucified Jesus, Mm. a suffering Jesus, you know, um, just walking with that four-year-old as they go back and forth in mud and dust and breathing in chemicals and picking out things so that, you know, so that I can be, you know, on Instagram looking at pictures of them. Right. (laughs) And I, and, and I, and that is in some ways that actually is war to me. That is its own sort of like silent war that we're all, that we're all fighting um, us to keep our things, you know, Right. I mean, not to shame anyone, but it is, you know, we're, we do have a, a soon to be 13 year old. We are going to get him a cell phone. And, and that has also been in my head, right? Like mm. you're probably getting more of my neuroticism than you want, but it, it is, it, it's, it's our own sort of way that we need to fall to our knees. There are our own battles that we're, you know, that we're just, we're justifying ourselves to fight. And we're, we're hurting other people and ourselves and, you know, in the process. I think of when you talk about that, RJ um, and Sarah, both of you, and we, we, I do, I do have a grandfather who was a war hero, actually, my mom's. A hero? Yeah, he had all these medals that he never talked about. Oh, okay. We didn't have no medals um, in our family. We just had suicide and alcoholism, but keep going. Yeah, he never got rid of the um, foot, uh, a fungus that he picked up in Guadalcanal. My grandfather was a, my mom's father was a marine on Guadalcanal. Anyway, oh my yeah, gosh! So there, there is. I, I don't want to say that I'm totally cordoned off from this. It just it it haunts yeah. most American families for of a certain yeah. era, especially Southerners. I mean, I just to be fair, I think Southerners, Midwesterners. I think you know, you kind of you have that's just a part of. I mean, our his families. his brother was one of the people who was trained to drop the atomic bomb. Um, wow! So the. But I was I was thinking about violence here, which um, um, remember when Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out, and uh, it, it was a very Catholic film in the sense of the mm-hmm. being so gory, the the violence and the, the whipping and everything like that, and and uh, you know I think some secular commentators called it like torture porn or something like that, and mm-hmm. I've seen the movie and I don't need to see it again, and it, it, there is a lot of blood in it. Um, but I always have this resounding sense from like, I think Gerhard Ferde says it, like if God is not present in the suffering and violence of the world, then where is he present? Where is and he? So a, <laughs> yeah. a, a revelation of God that is not somehow, he's not inflicting the violence, <laughs> but he is, he, it's being inflicted upon the suffering, the, the crucified one, that that is not um, to be played down, at least, or it's easy to play it down if you're never confronted with this sort of violence. But then Gibson went on to make, of course, maybe people have seen it, Hacksaw Ridge, which I think is one of the greatest quote-unquote war films ever made. And it's about a, a guy yeah. who refused to, who's a pacifist. And yeah. uh, just, uh, you know, um, played by Andrew Garfield, who just goes through the war saving people and sort of being, where is God to be found in the, in the battlefield? Um, uh, healing um, people on all sides and not mm-hmm. turning away from the atrocity that is war on all sides. Um, and again, people get very nervous. We're conflating things or, 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 or um, 
diminishing or uh, what's it called both sidesism or uh, equivalence false equivalencies and i don't i don't know enough to to draw any kind of equivalency except for to say that yeah i do believe what phil is saying when he says there's no the father searching for their child under the rubble whoever did the bombing that experience you in order to truly take it in and to honestly mourn it grieve it cry out is you cannot turn it into a ideologically useful thing immediately you have to go there first on an existential level i love that like you have to be present to who that person is empathy yeah for a long time and maybe if you're us and you don't know shit about shinola (laughs) that's where you stay do you know what i I mean probably so sarah that's where you stay. You don't, I mean, it's funny. So our backyard, we literally, our backyard is a civil war battlefield. Like people get dressed up in big old dresses and like go up there and I don't know what they do. Um, but, um, you know, one of the stories I know about our backyard is that when the Confederates surrendered, um, there was a general and some of the union soldiers were like, even though, you know, he surrendered, they impaled him to a tree back there. And the other thing I would say about this is we can often, when a war comes up, first of all, we're paying more attention to this one than we are several others that are happening, right? And that's always important to remember because this one we feel like we can have some really self-righteous opinion about. But war and violence is the human narrative. It is our state of being, which is why we need a savior that crawls through the muck of war to save us and, you know, and lives in it with us. And, um, you know, I made a joke when we moved here about how I'd love, I, you know, I always want to see a ghost so I can ask them if they see my parents. But, you know, I think I think about that, that general who was on the wrong side of history, you know, and died in my yard pretty much weekly right now i think what massacre took place where my dogs are running around so i don't know it's just it is i I would say to people who don't really have the information which i'm i'm a hundred percent is a hundred percent of the people listening to this (laughs) and you can send your complaint letters to rj um (laughs) yes that you you know your only posture really can be just prayer and forgiveness but also that like this war is not war is not new for us no and we're about to enter advent which is apparently the dark and i'm not a big advent guy but i think that the if if you need uh uh, grist for the mill here um advent is about it's darkness and it's god entering the light is entering the darkness is what rules the light is you know tiny prick of light in that manger uh but i want to give rj want to i think you'd have the final word here before we yeah well two quick things i think one thing we can say as christians and i think we've said this before i think it's i think we're on safe footing there is no justification anywhere in the pages of the new testament for any act of violence whatsoever on the part of anyone who would call themselves a follower of jesus yeah. Full stop. Sucks, and, but it's true. And yeah. I'm, I'm ready to have you write letters to me or something. But um, Jesus, Paul, the apostles, you know, they, they screw up. Peter cuts off the servant's ear and Jesus says, what are you doing? Yeah. Put that away. 
um, they're all pacifists. They're all nonviolent to the end. They would all rather be killed than inflict violence on another. Um, but sir, as you were talking about that child mining, it, it reminded me of a friend of mine. Dave, you know him, Casey Downing, yeah, who sure. attended our church in New York. And before he went to law school, he spent a year in India working with International Justice Mission. I think I've told this story before. And if you know IJM, they send Western lawyers, law enforcement officials into the deepest, darkest places on earth where people are involved in all sorts of exploitation, slavery, children. And I saw him when he got back and I said, how was it? And he said, um, I've seen evil like I never would have imagined. Mm. And I also had experiences of love, community, God that I never would have imagined. And I think it is a powerful reminder. You know, the, the lectionary reading this past week was about Jesus being present in the midst of hunger, thirst, nakedness, illness, imprisonment. Um, and that seems to always be the case, that God actually does show up. Jesus actually does show up in the midst of the most awful circumstances in ways that we can't imagine to bring about something like redemption, mm. joy, love, you know, so that even if we feel completely unequal to the task, but Jesus is not, you know, uh, uh, even if we don't roll up our sleeves, he has, he is, he will, he's in there. Um, and, and he, he's the only hope we he's have. He's not a teenager striking back in, uh, <laughs> revenge and anger, uh, or, no. uh, the, the, I, I always think that that's part of the miracle of, uh, much of the miracle of this amazing, um, season that we're entering into is the, the God who comes not, not to, um, to crush, but to redeem, um, Jesus, Jesus present in the darkness. Yeah. And the darkness overcomes him not. Well, let's leave it there. We're going to do one more episode, I think, before the end of the year, before we take a little break. But um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I do uh, do invite you again to in, respond to the appeal that uh, RJ gave at the beginning. Sure, it would certainly be a huge, huge help and support to this program as well as our wider ministry. Um, okay, you two. Hope the first few weeks of uh, December uh, find you happy and healthy. Great talking. Talk See to you soon. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.